substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200 The independent politics and media podcast We are back post-election Last week we skipped the recorded episode for a live stream uh, on election night. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was great. Uh, we we loved to do that, um, and and watch and mourn with everybody. Today I am joined by two co-hosts. We've got Stephanie. Welcome along again, Stephanie. Kia ora. And we've potentially got Olivier. Yeah, I'm here, more or less. Fantastic. Olivier, you're you're down live at the VTNZ. Um, how's that going for you? Correct. Uh, look, you know, got a trusty Toyota. Gonna sail it through another twelve months, and um, and there we go. Getting ready for the summer, all that kind of stuff. Bit of camping, a few roadies, Labor Weekends. That sounds like the the perfect summer. Before we kick off, I have got a pledges list to read out. So we had a successful pledge me earlier in the year. Um, we read some of these out on the live stream uh, over the weekend. Uh, and we're on to the next block. This is the the party faithful reward level. Uh, and here we go. We're just gonna we're just gonna read them right out. So we've got Chris Honey, Ross Palethorpe, Ed Hyde, Andre Batar, Deb, Lightopola, Oliver Woods, Michael Gray, Brad Peerless, Olivia Hutel, Alison McCourt, Briar, Steph, and Felix Leslie. Thank you very much. Now that was a different Steph. Stephanie, you've got your it's full name, name on there. It's a great name for great people. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much to everyone in that bracket um, for helping us get over the line. And yeah, we're we're already using that money. So it's it's been incredibly fruitful. But today uh, we have a whole bunch of horrible stuff to talk about. Midweek last week, we had some far more expert guests than I on the podcast to talk about the unfolding genocide in in gaza and it was bad then and it's worse now so there's there's not much more to add to it honestly it is continuing to get worse western governments by and large continue to give unmitigated support uh to the israeli state um and their incredibly far-right government the gazan people are being bombed every day Thousands are dead, and one or two hundred stands in solidarity with them. Uh, there have been a number of uh, marches last week. There are more over the weekend. Um, they'll probably already happened by the time you listen to this podcast. But I'm really hoping that, as is happening around the world, uh, the number of people getting out uh, to protest what is happening starts to put some pressure on Western governments, the slow-moving beasts that they are, um, and we start to see some change. I think there has been some movement in places like Spain, uh, where they've been calling for uh, Netanyahu to be tried or charged with war crimes, but the UK and the US in particular are still just all in on that, um, and... Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. So, so if I may, I mean, this yeah, is some um, this is some really crazy. Off, obviously, 
horrible, horrible blood curdling stuff, which unfortunately I've been, I mean, we've probably all been overexposing ourselves to, but there's potentially just some really profound changes in the kind of nature of whatever Pax Americana taking shape here. I mean, we don't want to overstate the importance of American public opinion, but a fact, but the fact that Data for Progress has just put out a poll saying that 66% of Americans are in support of a ceasefire, in spite of all of the sort of media propaganda assets that have been brought to bear to kind of, um, you know, create this post 9-11 sort of conditioning, like, that's really something. The fact that basically American prestige as a sort of diplomatic um, or or thing to curry favor or thing to do deals with is, I don't know, like, is it just plummeting through the floor? I mean, obviously, American influence and power in a military sense is still a, a, a massive force to be reckoned with. But um, and again, that creates a set of problems for us with an incoming right wing government that's um, you know, and there's been rumblings about you know, AUKUS and sort of realigning with uh, the American um, view of the world. I mean, I think this is this is going to it's just crazy, man. It's just going to undo a lot of global stability or ways of which, of, you know, doing business in the world that, yeah, in addition to all the fucking human suffering, which I could go to at length. But I, I don't think this is going to go incredibly well. And I think in terms of uh, where the needle may turn here a little bit, too, is just looking at what Israel society and politics are constructing right now. The fact that we've had um, leaks from inside the Biden administration saying that, Netanyahu asked Biden for like a 10-year engagement, basically, that this is a forever war. They want, they want carte blanche for a forever war. And we are already seeing uh, claims from, oh gosh, uh, Dr. Kasif, the Knesset member of, of, from the Communist Party, is basically saying that the uh, Minister for Internal Security... Ben Gavir, who's a fucking fascist, who is uh, a massive admirer of Mir Kahan and Baruch Goldstein, two total fascists, that he is arming right-wing militias inside Israel right now. I mean, the civil strife we might see inside Israel, this shit is flying apart very quickly, in addition to the incredible immense toll of human suffering. So shit is wild, man. Yeah, it's, um, you know, a lot of us, only really interact with this um, in the online space, uh, other than when there are there are protest marches or things like that. But it's been just an incredibly weird situation to be online during this time, just seeing the kinds of things popping into uh, people's threads and being commented on, a lot of which seems completely out of touch with what's happening in the real world. Like very clear use of propaganda you know we're, we're calling stuff disinformation but that word just does not feel appropriate anymore as a as a word to describe what is occurring or, or what the intent is behind some of this stuff uh and it also you know it is saying it means nothing now like disinformation has become almost a meaningless word uh because it's like calling someone a troll it's it's completely without um it, it means what people want it to mean essentially well, and really quickly, and before I mute, because I'm going to get my Warner Fitness sticker in a minute, but basically we've had the last six years where we've been preoccupied with little bits of subterfuge that might come through our online, our online feeds, and now literally we have heads of state 
well, you know, demented uh, crypt keeper head of state lying to us about images that he's seen and telling lurid tales. And there's no sort of like, there's no subterfuge required. It's just traditional mass propaganda. I mean, again, I mentioned that these people, the disinfo people, they hate Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model um, because, well, what? Because it's aligned with making critiques about who we're allowed to murder, who we mourn, who we don't mourn, this kind of concept of unworthy victims, and capital and empire. They want to disavow all that. Um, and now here we see it. and It's just sort of pure brute form yeah it's been pretty frightful um and everyone out there um doing this stuff take care eh? Uh, look after yourselves um and again um solidarity with the palestinian people and with gaza um and with those in the west bank as well who are now um more continuing uh to see violence from settlers it's unless the rest of the world cracks the fuck down um in particular the u.s um, this is this is not looking like it's going to go well. Yeah, I just want to throw in because I wasn't obviously on the previous episode, but um, <clears throat> shout out to <clears throat> sorry, most millennial thing in the world. I'm going to recommend a YouTube video. Um, the it's a couple of years old now. It's from the last time there was a flare up um, of mass atrocities in Gaza. Uh, the channel Some More News has a great Israel Palestine video, which the the fundamental point of which is really what I've been trying to to press upon people is that the situation isn't complicated. Everyone wants to say it's complicated and then back away and say, oh, well, that means nothing can be done, whoopsie, but it's not complicated. There's one side which is one of the most developed militaries in the world, supported unequivocally by the most advanced military in the world, and the other side are being kept in an open-air prison. And at that point, someone goes, but don't you condemn Hamas? And then I just go, you need to think about why that's the first freaking question you're asking, because honestly critique your own brain and what you've been taught to prioritize anyway that's just my my two cents well uh on the score of uh actually it's, it's been a uh, really heartening to me because uh my zoomer kids uh are obviously exposed to a lot of hassan piker and this guy's been like doing nine hour streams a day of like just incredible um yeah, history and context and journalism. And so, you know, for all this worry about Zoomers seeing, uh, I mean, of course, tons of graphic images and, and I'm, I'm still old school here. I, I want to, you know, I want to watch Al Jazeera where there's a lot of sort of journalistic, vague sketches of the carnage, but not really the carnage as such. I don't want to see it at a Snapchat level of intimacy. That would be like, you know, yeah, that, that kind of horror would, would do something to me. So I understand that that's a concern, but basically uh, all this, this notion of being worried about exposure to digital harm really just comes back from the fact that in the kind of Zoomer media space, like the kids know, right? They just know it's as you say, it's not that difficult. And um, and like every other fucking issue, we're seeing this just massive generational breakdown on, um, you know, between boomers and Xers and then the Zoomers coming through. But um, this it's different. It's different this time because this is sort of the last grasp hanging on to the structures of empire. And that's not to say that they may not still have this stranglehold and our democracies and our media systems might just go the way of, of total empire and 9-11 clash of civilization stuff. Um, but at least people know. 
what can I say? Let's move on. Um, keep an eye out for, I guess, keep an eye out for protests and marches in your neighborhood. Um, people are doing quite a good job of popularizing those and, and getting them out online. Um, do show up to them if you can. Let's at least uh, try and show the people who are making these decisions uh, that there is public support. All right. Uh, we had an election last week, last weekend, the final results of which are not yet out. Um, but pretty pretty clear win for the right-wing bloc, um, even after all the special votes are counted. It's likely just going to mean that the right-wing bloc widens and includes uh, everyone's favourite political boy, uh, Winston Peters, um, instead of just National and ACT. It's been pretty quiet, uh, I guess for lack of a better word. No one really wants to talk about what they're uh, discussing in coalition agreements. Everyone's trying to run under the radar. Most of the politicians asked about it have said straight to people's face, like, I'm not going to talk about it, unless you're David Seymour, in which case, if you're asked, what if the major party rules it out, you just simply rule it in. What <laughs> a piece of shit. What a smug cunt. It's... I just can't, but as someone, as a, as a, you know, just recently Green Party candidate, I just love the difference in framing and approach and what kind of nonsense answers get tolerated when it's a right-wing three-headed coalition going in when you compare how freaking measured and like the not even measured but when like James and Martimer on the campaign trail were saying well Chris Hipkins doesn't get to rule things out the voters get to you know decide what the makeup of the next government is and that was treated as some kind of immense level disrespect my god chris hipkins is gonna have to take out a blood contract on your entire family now and and seymour just gets to say childish bullshit and for some reason we're still meant to respect him as a politician it's so embarrassing eh? it's so clear like people are like oh but most people in the media are left-wing or liberal and it's like well, that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the structures that allow this kind of shit this but you're looking at it right now it's incredibly evidenced like as soon as the um the chaos narrative switched because you're looking at this three-party much more historically chaotic uh makeup with Winston Peters in the mix uh it just went out the window like no sorry it's not chaos anymore that's only for uh the greens and the party maori and labor it's just it's so embarrassing um and for lack of reflection it's just been i mean look i've been um consuming this last election through the sort of tertiary sector woes and and thinking about that issue primarily because that's that's my area but I mean, I'll never forget seeing the press gallery responding to Grant Robertson's announcement of some extra funding for the tertiary sector with just this pack of like Econ 101 free market dipshits talking about like, are they worthy of a bailout to, you know, or who's going to pay for it? And how do you just, it was just like, uh, yeah, it was like an act party press gallery, which comes from. I guess we've sort of internalized whatever neoliberal common sense. I mean, Tova, Tova was talking about uh, Labor's promise to give back or, or to reduce spending by $4 billion as like long-awaited overdue relief for like New Zealanders. It's like, do you, do you like understand, I don't know, like anything about the role government can play in the economy? Like just... So that's sort of like a baseline level of, of reaction. Then you've got David Seymour's Ben Shapiro 
sort of debate club coding, which somehow works for them. I don't know why. Um, and then the third level is, I, I suppose it's it's quite remarkable how much the current right wing antagonism has been towards the public interest journalism fund. Like that, that's part of like our apartheid system, is like having public interest journalism that's going to uh, respond to, in part at least, our treaty obligations, all the rest of it. And then you know, there these people are working for organizations that hate the notion of public broadcasting because, well, whatever, they're run by private equity or any of this other stuff. So it's just it's just matriculated through the journalistic common sense. Again, and these these are people that'll tell you that they're not like affected by the bosses or anything, but it's it's just it's just clear. Like that's where this kind of right wing media environment just lets Seymour do his thing. Well, it's it's invisibilizing the power dynamics and it's invisibilizing the fact that neoliberalism is an ideology as much as socialism is. And it goes to this thing. Sorry, this is a hobby horse of mine. So I'll <laughs> free to edit. No, um, I won't. It's a thing that I have been, frankly, yelling at the Labour Party about for many years now, which is that there's a fundamental narrative to our politics, and that narrative is national good economic managers, Labour tax and spend. And Labour's answer to this has always been, but if we prove that we're good economic managers, we can overturn this narrative, which exists precisely to reinforce the idea that national is the natural party of government. And then we see how this has been just made a natural law, made a natural assumption. And the fact that friend of the show, Craig Rennie at the CTU is out there doing all the actual number crunching. He's, God knows how much sleep he's had over the campaign. He's just going, okay, well, if their policy says this, and we know that household income distribution is this, then actually they're talking absolute crap about their tax cuts. They're talking absolute crap about their projections. They haven't actually done any modeling. And then suddenly once that gets out, all the journalists are just like, oh, oh, let's hold Nicola Willis to account. It's like, you know, you could have done this months ago. You know, that policy's been sitting there. That tax calculator's been on their website. But it was simply taken as read that if National puts out a policy with numbers in it, those numbers will be fine. And you can just put up big headlines saying, wow, what a game-changing, amazing political marketing tool this is. And then if you are, and I'm sorry, he's a mate, but Jason Walls, have a word with yourself then complaining that it's actually voters' fault that they didn't do the digging. It's like, he said something on Twitter, on X, like, um, you know, voters shouldn't just take what politicians say at face value. It's like, they weren't. They were taking what you said at face value because you're meant to be a journalist. You're meant to provide the analysis, and you didn't, and then the CTU had to do it, and Craig had to put up with so much shit from the online bot army who are trying to literally lose him his job. Yeah. Well, the the levels of disinterest and mediocrity, like, I don't know, this is such a, like, profound cultural problem of, like, who gives a shit about... I mean, I look, sorry, this this is going to sound a bit tough, but like our relationship to to leaders is we're supposed to like identify with their journey and their struggles and their success. And, you know, this was part of how we were when Jacinda resigned. It was kind of like, look, you know, can you imagine what it was like to go through? And OK, I don't want to lose the human element of, of course, they're human beings, all that kind of stuff. 
But there's never a kind of, look, your role in public service or in media or of any of those things is not, it's not really about like your journey. It's like being a representative for these political social forces over whom you have a kind of duty and obligation. Like, so the fact that labor, whatever, disinterested in doing the hard, real political work is just already a fucking indictment. I mean, I've had, uh, I've been pretty jaded because my own little hobby horse of uh, crypto and shit, like this went through a select committee that was chaired by my two local Dunedin MPs. And they just basically like greenlit an industry uh, whitewash for the dodgiest industry imaginable. So like, I mean, I just, I didn't really realize how much nobody gives a shit. Like that's some, and, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with this in thinking of the tertiary sector and you have people like Jan Thomas at Massey who are like arsonists who are responding to the, whatever the neoliberal zeitgeist, not out of any sense of like, this is rational management, but Hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. So this is just like, um, it's like a spiritual problem, but but there we go. No, I mean you're probably right, and it's on train tracks as well. Like it's a it's a ghost train because even when you're pointing it out, as you're saying in regards to some of that media stuff, Stephanie, like it doesn't stop. <laughs> they they still wake up in the morning and write a, write another headline that does exactly the same thing. And I don't know, people get uh, pissed off with us maybe in the media. But we've been telling them the problems with this for five years with reasonable politeness, I think, a lot of the time. And I know, like, people in the gallery listen to listen to this. Um, and I know they interact with me on Twitter. And it's mostly cordial. Uh, but you just need to get better. And it's going to be incredibly bad. Yeah, so you've got this right-wing government where you've got uh, junior partners who their entire goal is to pull the economic... Uh, platform to the far right like really really out there stuff this was completely uncovered during the election campaign we like no one ever got into what apps election policies meant and we've got david seymour on tv this week saying he's gonna rule shit in it's gonna be it has the potential to be uh like horrific you know the news hub in the last week of the election were parading ruth richardson around what the why does she oh feel comfortable God. entering yeah. the public sphere again? And that hey, just makes me really worried. We're talking about a wahine who's done the mahe, okay? Like, you know, come on. Come on. But you don't can't like deny that, she's uh... iconic, Kyle. She's iconic. Uh, I mean, are you right? Icons are always good, right? I can't deny it. But the fact that some media organizations felt comfortable doing that, it says to me that they're preparing to have a re-entry of that kind of politics of that kind of horrific slash and burn economic policy uh that we saw in the early 90s and you know am i is this tea leaves uh yes a little bit you know i'm picking up pieces that are in the in the public sphere i'm saying what does this mean but because New Zealand is so small and because the way that politics and media network with each other, you know, they're all fucking or whatever you want to say, you can, you can make these calls. You can say, okay, so why have they done this, this pretty niche thing? There's, it's not random, <laughs> you know, it's someone up the chain was like, hey, let's get Ruth in. 
you know like she's she's a good mate she's on the board of this thing that i'm on the board of i i think it's time to have her back in the political media environment someone has said that you know it's not like oh we just you know they don't flip a coin or something they don't roll a dice and like choose it from a, a d100 table um and, oh well that was unlucky we got ruth richards and now oh, we've got to follow through though uh someone has made this decision and and Paula Bennett as well. Paula Bennett getting rolled out, despite having an active role in the National Party campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's an even clearer one, right? Uh, and in the real estate space, and we've seen everything happening there. So I'm not super hopeful about this incoming government. Thoughts on on that, Stephanie, having been involved in the campaign? Uh, yeah. Um, so the, the thing that caught my eye uh, this week, and I'm not going to be that person who's like, why didn't the media cover this? Because they did, but just didn't get the same headlines that, you know, the, the usual narrative does. But David Seymour basically suggesting that our curriculum become, our education curriculum become an app store. Like, we're just going to make it free market and anyone can produce materials and anyone can market them and then whichever one's the most popular. And it's like, well, okay, for, for a start, one, who the fuck thinks the app store is a good example of a <laughs> market that's delivering for its consumers? But also, like, their fundamental drive is to privatise our education system and their fundamental drive is to decrease the public services that people rely on and their fundamental drive is to make people starve in order to churn out obedient little workers for business and that's not an interpretation of their policy that's just what they tell us they're gonna do and the fact that David Seymour gets treated as this cute little joker figure oh he said a wacky thing and it's like can you can you tell people why that thing is actually objectively disproven uncredible harmful to our communities oh no you can't because that would be political to actually apply any analysis to what david seymour is saying and doing but you know chris hipkins eats a goddamn sausage roll and that's headlines for a week all right uh honestly the sausage roll thing that's oof, man i'm still recovering from last weekend with the i mean like oof. okay sorry but the app store thing we're basically talking about prager U, and one of the Okay, let me let me sort of uh, weave this uh, conspiratorial tapestry. But basically, we've seen a kind of like dead end of sort of cheerful techno optimism, like no one really takes that seriously. And yet we're sort of like reanimating that here. Like we had Judith Collins announcing uh, another sort of uh, sort of tech investor visa, where she used the language of quote, we're a startup nation, we just need to scale up. Like, that's like 2012 rhetoric. It's kind of, it's kind of wild that that's still, I don't know, kicking around, but I guess, yeah, whether that's sort of charter schools, PragerU, or uh, my own, again, uh, the crypto people, they've got this wonderful policy document just in the last minute from the labor, you know, select committee, which is basically like, look, you know, maybe we need to bank some crypto and, and maybe we need to create, uh, you know, they, they, they invoke cloud first. And the fact that there's now an imperative to make digital ID a thing that's uh, government recognized. So they literally say things like we can use the sole machines AI NFT avatars is like an official government ID. And anyway, the crypto people, they've just gotten uh, a TVNZ series, TVNZ series, What the Fuck is Crypto, which is just 
It's Brooke Howard Smith. It's total propaganda. And I, I mean, I guess this is sort of like a fintech. If everything is real estate speculation, then, you know, why not all the sort of wildness of, of fintech speculation? It's going to be a great time for, you know, this kind of charlatanism. I mean, it's also, uh, we just had Mark Andreessen Horowitz this week put out the Techno Optimists Manifesto, which was like, just it was a reheating of the Futurist Manifesto. It was completely fascist, but, you know, sort of given a very thin veneer or sort of skin of of whatever sort of uh, like a Seymour like clown performance, and I'm not I'm not sure we're ready for this. I'm not sure we're ready rhetorically, strategically. When when I say we, I guess the media and the institutions that are supposed to sort of protect us from that. Um, I mean, I thought Seymour's performance on Teal with Moana was. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it was a good performance, but again, it it just demonstrates the difficulties we're going to have in dealing with a Shapiro-style debate nerd that's normalizing all of these heinous things, right? That undo not just the political consensus, but the legal consensus of the last 30 plus years here. So yeah, we're gonna see some ugly stuff. Yeah, my fear is that the right is always a bit better at being uh, pragmatically self-interested. And so even though we know we've got these different factions in this government, which, um, whether it's just National Act or National Act of Zealand first, then within National you've got the uh, neo-libs and then you've got the very, very scary religious extremists. The worst case scenario is that they all just go, well, let's just settle our disagreements and each of us go off into our little corner and do the most damage we possibly can. I think they're going to be emboldened by how terribly Labour has done and by how much of its good talent Labour has lost. Um, we're looking at the same kind of situation that Labour has had uh, in the past in government where Nationals just been so destroyed and chaotic and unable to adapt that they've got to assume they've got six years. They've, they're probably going to assume they've got Definitely, nine years. Yeah. And they also know, because this is what the key government demonstrated very well and the Ardern government failed to do, and I'm going to be mad about it forever, you get stuff done early. You get the really hard cuts done early, and then by the time the next team gets to get in, you, it's it's irreversible. It's done. It's locked in. There's no way without putting in a huge amount of money and investment and time and resource, which then just goes to national accusing them of being tax and spend and them going, no, 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 look, a surplus. Um, so, what about the last nine um, years, I'm though, worried. Stephanie? What about the last nine years? Oh, my God. Uh, it's, such, it's so disgusting. But, you know, this is something we were saying, like, you do have to actually fucking do something. You can't just put in reviews and then just like refuse to act on them. You can't just keep saying, oh, there's lots of work to do. Yeah, there is. Fucking crack on. Um, yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to lose because you've got an absolute majority in their second term. Um, and people are going to, oh, they didn't do anything. And National's going to run on that. And you're going to lose. You And then they did. I'm somewhat heartened by the doubling of the uh, MPs of both the Greens and Te Pāti Māori, though. Like mm -hmm. that gives us the opportunity for a real opposition. How how are we thinking that like plays out though? Do do either of those groups or even Labour in this environment have the ability to put the screws to a, a right wing government or will it just be ignored? I think the Greens are in a good position to do it. I'm obviously biased. Um, and I think Te Pāti Māori are in a good position to do it because they've now got Debbie and Rabari with 
the experience of working in parliament um the greens also have some very experienced people in caucus as well as bringing in the new fresh faces who've just gone through what was a really really kind of oh what's the word i'm looking for decisive isn't the word i'm looking for but a campaign where the people have come through know what they're fighting for in the greens inter party maori they know that this is a fight they know that they can't just sit back not that either of those parties ever did, but it's not a situation of going, oh, well, we'll just we'll just chill and order some reviews. Everyone in both of those caucuses knows this is a fight. For the Greens, um, having 14, potentially 15 MPs and having the resource base of three electorates puts them in a massive opportunity to really wield some serious power and the greens have always been good and this is something i've always said so it's not just that i'm horribly biased but the greens have always been good at understanding that parliament is not just about being in ministerial offices wielding ministerial power the number of seats they've got means more people on select committee it means more questions and question time it means more um media and comms and policy development resource to really solidify the arguments and the messages and get more of that out there so it's it's it a shitty tithing. situation, but it's possibly the best best of those situations we could be in. And I also just have to shout out, I can't remember who put these around on um Blue Sky, but someone did the graphs of the ethnic and gender breakdowns oh. um, of all the parties in parliament. And um the Greens have more Maori MPs than National does, which is a little little concerning. Um but yeah, we've got on the left, we've got really good, diverse, strong caucuses representing every community. And if we can just figure out how the fuck to put the screws to them, then we can slow them down. We know that the right-wing policies they've been elected on aren't actually that popular as much as the um, live headlines want to tell us otherwise. Just... We know we can get popular movements going. I mean, we think about how many people we got turning out in Auckland and Wellington when one nasty little far-right turf decided she was going to try something like we can harness people power and we know that national governments are very susceptible to public opinion swaying against them um act in new zealand first don't care but i feel like if christopher luxon gets in or his caucus gets in the situation of fearing they're only going to be in for three years and then a romping progressive left-wing coalition is going to come in with the actual willpower to get stuff done then they will moderate and it'll still suck and a lot of people will still be hurt but again i'm talking best case scenarios here and hopefully um this is like a five percent chance hopefully labor get their shit together and do some renewal and find their purpose or get out of the way <laughs> because <laughs> I, I worked briefly in the Labour Party leader's office when Phil Goff was the leader in 2009, uh, and my, that team my, just apologies. wallowed in self-pity for a while. Yeah. I think um, that's going to be the really important thing, and, you know, we we hate to say it, but at the moment, Labour are still the, the party of record for the left, um, and they need to be the people bringing more people in uh, to understand <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, 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 I was too. flirting with the French Socialist Party option in my head, you know, like, could we just implode the thing? But then we would get some, whatever, some mutant center-right Macron, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, look, I've been, uh, for me, it's been a challenge because, uh, I'll just say it, my, I mean, there's, look, there's a, there's a left-wing TEU uh, network that's, 
in kind of crisis mode, like what do we do about our union and the fact that they don't know how to deal with um, a labor party that is betraying them? So there's, um, you know, it's, I guess, again, in opposition, all of the kind of rallying uh, messaging will be good. But I mean, I, I'm just so reminded as we saw sort of Andrew Little resign, I'm just sort of, um, you know, are we getting anybody from the labor movement into the labor party that's not just using the labor movement as a kind of like, I don't know, professional stepping stone? Like, what would it mean? Again, look, I, this is, God damn it, this is so pathetic on my part, but I, I keep thinking of like Sue Bradford as like R. Corbin or Sanders in the sense that like, hey, somebody that didn't compromise with their values for all this time that came from like the unemployed workers movement or like... Who is that person? Like, how can we get like somebody that is really of, you know, representative of, of movements and, and catapult them and, and have a party made up of those types of people? And, and again, the Greens, love the Greens. Shout out to Dr. Scott Willis. Um, really stoked for him and bummed that we couldn't get Franny over the line. But to the extent that labor must exist, then it needs to be a fucking labor party. And um, I don't know what the kind of quick hack of, of making it more of a labor party looks like. Yeah, I think that's going to be the real struggle of this term. And I, one way for that to do it is for the Greens to use their... Uh, new caucus members and the new power they have and the electorate power they have to really fucking push them like, and and they've done that this campaign i wish they'd done it for six years because it was working it, you know like it feels like it was possibly nearly there because as long as you've got act and whoever else on the right of the national party they're going to be sprinting in the other direction a green party that is more interested in consolidating labor's power than it is in pulling the conversation left was never going to get them votes and was never going to help Labour in any useful way in a situation where we know people aren't voting and we know that people have a... There is high support for progressive policies that Labour wasn't picking up. And you saw as soon as the Greens started picking it up on the campaign trail and being more antagonistic to Labour, that's where those votes were coming from. That, you know, like... So there's so much they can do now. I'm, I'm really hoping that party central understands like the opportunity they have here and are looking overseas at examples like the ndp in canada who tried to play that line a little bit go a little more centrist try and uh compete uh with justin trudeau it doesn't work um, especially if you're trying to work mm -hmm. with them on stuff because the bigger party will take everything that you do and claim it as their own. Uh, and then if you fuck up, you will get buried by the establishment. Uh, same happened in Scotland with the Scottish Greens. You know, like everything good that they did with the um, ruling party uh, was just folded into that narrative. Um, and out they go. Um, you can even look at other minor parties that aren't left wing, like the liberals in the UK just got fucked. Like you, you cannot win that um, in the current state because the major parties are more interested in keeping it to a two-party system than they are doing actual policy that will help people um, or working with anyone. And we've seen what a major party with an absolute majority uh, will do. Understand that now, please, everybody, that that's, that's what happens. The Greens need to try and become 
a major party. Like that should be the overarching goal of the next three to six years. And it really, it really sucks that it has to take time. But everyone saw, everyone following politics from the left saw the Greens can put out like incredible, costed, like independently reviewed policy. It doesn't mean shit. Sorry, because you're you're just not big enough. You don't have enough reach yet. You're not. You don't have your claws in the institutions. That's just the reality of it. Get to that point. So at the same time, though, I and this is just me as a candidate, always having an answer for everything. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I think people were really receptive to the idea that pulling the conversation leftwards and pulling the conversation in a more green way is still important. Like I did get questions about, well, if you're in opposition, then what are you going to do? And it's like, well, well the public agrees. The yeah. And that's part of it, right? Like the public agrees. Why isn't it happening? Yeah. I think a big part of it is that there's a, and I was saying this to somebody who was like, why aren't we, you know, we know how popular our policies are and, and we've got great people. Why aren't we a higher percentage? And it was like, well, a lot of it is inertia and narrative again. The Greens are a minor party. Therefore, people see us on like, I can't remember what percentage we got, but you know, even when we were getting polls that had us at kind of um 20 MPs, that's obviously the number I focused on as number 20 on the list. <laughs> I think a lot of people would have seen that and gone, oh, okay, cool. Well, then I can just go back to voting for Labour because they're gonna still need people in there, right? You know, obviously they have to be the major party because the narrative is that they're the major party. And that's one of the ongoing weaknesses of our MMP system is that we've never gotten away from having those two major parties. And I'm just wondering when the split is going to happen, whether it's going to be Labour has a split between its centrists and its unionists and it's probably a few actual socialists left in there, or is it going to be national having a split between its fundamentalist Christians and its farmers and its business people? But one of those parties has to shatter. Um, at some point, the contradictions just have to become too much. And it's probably going to happen when they're in opposition because it's no one's going to pick that fight off yeah. when they're actually in a ministerial position. But yeah, I think there's a bit of inertia behind it. And that's why it has to take time. Because even though if people truly voted in accordance with the policies they like, we'd be a 40% party. Oh, we just um, have top and we just have 50% top. Don't. Kyle we don't have time <laughs> we don't have time for me and Tom um, but yeah so I think it's going to be building on it simply so people get used to the idea of the Greens having 15 MPs then 18 MPs then 22 MPs yeah I agree that's I, I think one of the things that really frustrated me was this kind of um and it was coming from within the Greens as well I think to some extent like a Green-led Labour government kind of stuff like you've really tied yourself to the horses there mate and I understand the, the necessity for it, but until the left in general gets away from that language, then it's not going to work. Again, you know. I feel just to be a bit defensive of my party. One it. of the things about this election is that this was probably one where we have been the clearest we've ever been um, oh, about not going with national. Um, instead of, you know, the, the good old Russell Norman days of like, well, we can't <laughs> Who knows? it out. Um, I think, you know, getting us to a stage of, yes, we're going to be a Labour-aligned party yeah. but we are going to be pulling them i think we yeah we're kind of no i agree we're, it's part we're, of it. we're it's complicated on our facebook <laughs> relationship status with blame at the moment um well it's not bloody x um <laughs> so yeah and and just just shout out to my my friend and former competitor jessica hammond who was the top candidate in ohario where i ran who kept referring to us as a client party of labor mainly i think because she knew it made me mad um but yeah we'll get there
Yeah, and I think, like, as you've said, there was that shift, this election. Um, it just takes time to move it. And, yeah, it's just all too slow for me, really, given the, the multiple crises that are incoming. I think that maybe just about wraps us. Is there anything else that I said we needed to talk about? We haven't talked about how well I personally did as a candidate, Kyle. Hey, look, okay, I give just, us the update. You're not going to have me not skite about okay. my results, because I was okay, a first-time candidate. So. It's a sky, skiting minute. Skiting it's, minute was definitely Rogers. This all comes from the insecurity of having been a comms advisor and a press secretary for so long. And so <laughs> as a candidate, it's like, wait, can I actually do the thing I've been telling people how to do for years? Um, and so I'm just uh, using stats here from my uh, good old campaign manager and good friend, Nicole gallic on X, like, girl, get a blue sky already. Um, for the party vote, Naharu, we got a 10.3% increase in total party votes, highest party vote numbers ever in Oharu, nearly a 30% increase in personal votes for me, highest Oharu votes ever for a Green Party candidate. And that was when it, you know, it was a pretty tight contest between Greg and Nicola. And we got the fourth biggest increase in party vote percentage for an electorate. And I only know that because good friend of the pod, Fran, ran the numbers, um, mostly to show off the fact that he got the highest <laughs> increase in party vote percentage. I think 8% up on 2020. Kia ora, comrade. Um, the shit posters do pretty well. Uh, more of us should run. I look, I absolutely agree. Um, we're into that. Uh, and yeah, fantastic results. Um, and Willis kept out too. Honestly surprised. She has been going so hard for the seat She's in an election unlikable. that swung against Labour. I mean, yeah. I had to sit through a lot of candidate meetings with both of them. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, yeah. But the, the electorate spoke. And yeah, that's, that's with a really great green candidate too. So yeah, splitting uh, unlike, um, unlike in Mount Albert, well, maybe it's been scuttled. Maybe the Labour hopes have been scuttled. Mm. But let's not get into that. Um, I think, that, yeah, that, that about wraps us. Um, I was remiss not to offer you that uh, opportunity up front, Stephanie. So thank you for reminding what me. What am I on this show for, Kyle? Talk about <laughs> me. Self-promotion, nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, it's been another week. Uh, we'll be back into it with uh, weekly current events. We'll be trying to shift stuff up a little bit, um, make this a bit sharper. Possibly this is an under an hour. I don't know. Uh, <gasps> but we're going to try to get them under an hour. So it's a, a bit easier for everyone to listen to. But we need to do some work around that. We need to do some production. Um, and we need to do some, you know, actual uh, frameworking of, of what a piece of media looks like. Uh, right. Because we have... I have been listening, re-listening to the A More Civilized Age episodes on Andor, three-hour episodes beautiful star wars content <laughs> i'm here for it all right well maybe we go bigger maybe we go bigger we don't uh we might have a few more midweek podcasts as well uh coming up for you uh thank you to my co-host this morning uh hey oh. really quickly but yes you no 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 i we, we gotta i gotta thank y'all i mean congrats on the pledge but like your coverage over the last i mean the the, the content and the volume has been incredible so Big shout out to y'all, um, and God knows it's a pity that there's no public interest journalism fund that'll that'll get chopped. But seriously, uh, yeah. So yeah, thanks for joining us, Olivia. Uh, Sorry for posting cringe. Sorry for posting cringe. You never <laughs> apologize for cringe. No, no, just get on on it. Uh, thank you, Stephanie, for joining us again. Kia um, And thank you to our listeners. Share, like, retweet, hit the Patreon in the summary. Um, and yeah, we've got a big three years ahead of us. Uh, Let's let's fuck them up. See you later. If artifices are then I'm living a pointless slide, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The word
Like we're on the road to hell 